We're back on air. Hello and welcome to episode 15 of Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. It's the podcast that celebrates the English and Australian cricketers who played in only one Ashes test. We're currently feasting on the 1985 series in England. Arnie Sidebottom, who we featured last time around, played in the third test at Trent Bridge, but injury ruled him out of the fourth at Old Trafford. The selectors turned to Leicestershire's Jonathan Agnew with a six-match series locked at 1-1. You might remember that Jonathan played a role in episode nine of this podcast, which featured the remarkable tale of the Vietnam War veteran, Tony Dell. A friend of mine who's a scorer for the MCC got me an interview with Jonathan Agnew on BBC Test Match Special. Greg heard the interview and decided that it was a good enough story for him to write a book. The Greg was Greg Millam. The book was And Bring the Darkness Home, inspired by that conversation between Tony Dell and Aggers. It was released in 2021. But today we're going to focus on the playing career of English test cricketer 508. You might know him better as the voice of BBC Cricket, Mr Jonathan Agnew. Jonathan Agnew was a right-arm fast bowler for Leicestershire in England. He took 666 first-class wickets at 29, taking five in an innings 37 times and 10 in a match on six occasions. He played three tests and three ODIs for England, including his one Ashes test in 1985. Jonathan, welcome to Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be with you. Let's start with uh, just a general question. What, what are your first memories of Ashes cricket? My first memory was of Bob Massey, actually, at Lords. 72, was it, I think, from memory. And just the way that he swung the ball, the unplayable balls, really, that he produced, and the way he ran through England. I mean, bowling almost sort of impossible deliveries, really, bowling right-handed batsmen from round the wicket within swingers and, and you know, vice versa with the left-handers. It was, I just thought it was absolutely incredible. And I was just getting into cricket. I was 12 at the time. So it was quite a sort of influential time for me personally. And my dad still wanted me to be an off-spinner <laughs> and I wanted to be a fast bowler. And I just watched Bob and, of course, Dennis Lilly at the other end and was just struck by it, really, and by Ian Chappell. Uh, Rob Marsh, these characters, these Australian characters who are obviously quite larger than life and, uh, I don't know, deemed as being the bad guys. You know, you wanted <laughs> to get up and get stuck into the Aussies. But, of course, they've all become really good friends. It's what's bizarre about my life, really. You know, Ian, I'm, I've spoken to him four or five times. I've been here in Australia and I'll see him next week. Uh, Bob Massey, I've actually handled those balls uh, <laughs> in his... In his in his cabinet at, at home in Perth, you know, I've actually touched them, held them, you know, and so to, and Dennis and me, I mean, it's, it's, it's just weird how it's all come round. And I can assure you that although at the time we were sort of encouraged to think they were big and bad and brutal and horrible, and so they are all such really nice blokes, and uh, I'd, I'd be very lucky to be to be friends with them. So yeah, I mean, it must have been surreal, you know, listening to TMS on the radio when you're growing up as well, and then decades later, it's your voice coming out of the radio. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really... I mean, I listened to Test Match Special as a kid because my dad was, and I think that's still the way with lots of people listening to Test Match Special. Lots of kids, you know, I think they get their 
through their parents listening in the cars, um, or in my case, you know, dad doing the harvest. And he always carries radio around and he was all chuckling, you know, but it, it was the sound. It was the sound of the voice and the crowd. The John Arlott and, and Brian Johnston, particularly distinctive for me in those days. Alan McGilvery, the Australian. And, and although I didn't, I didn't really, you know, I had no idea I was going to be doing this. So I just sat and just listened to it a bit. I remember we had a little duck pond at home and there was a bench. And I, went, I remember going down there and sitting and listening to the cricket for a while with a little transistor radio and being sort of transported to wherever it was. But because I then took up playing professionally from 16, I, I never really listened much to Test Match Special because we were playing. So I never really heard it very much and, until suddenly I was actually on it. And yeah. it, I, think, I think that was a good thing in a way because I didn't really have much in the way of nerves or anxiety or feel any pressure or tension with the position because I didn't really appreciate what it was at the time. Yeah. I just you know, rock, rocked up and went to work. Now, Ken Taylor of Yorkshire has featured on this podcast, and I understand that he was one of your coaches, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. And again, a, a lovely fellow. One of my big regrets is that I actually was at a dinner in Leeds a few years ago, a charity dinner, and a lovely painting came up of Jeffrey Boycott, who, again, is obviously someone I deal with a lot. And it's that classic picture of a Boycott cover drive. And I thought, oh, that's really nice. I only realised later that actually the artist was Ken Taylor. And if I'd known, if I'd known, I'd bought it. Because, yes, I was at school near Norfolk, uh, near Norwich. And my first coach was actually a woman called Eileen Ryder, whose husband was also a, a teacher at the school, and she was a teacher at the school, and she taught the real kids, you know, eight, I was eight. And so she was my first coach. But she really got me into cricket after my father gave me the interest, you know, so good old Eileen. But then when I'd gone a little bit old, maybe two or three years later, Ken Taylor came to coach because he then had moved to Norfolk. And he was a really nice, gentle fellow, a softly spoken Yorkshireman. And so, yes, he was my cricket coach for probably two or three years, I suppose, at Taverham School. You say you want to become a fast bowler. What kind of bowler were you developing into during your teens? Well, I always wanted to be a fast bowler, but Dad, who was an off-spinner, was determined that I'd be an off-spinner. And my dad was incredibly patient, really. And I think my brothers inherited that more than I have because my brother's a teacher as well, and he coaches cricket. But my dad because he wanted me to be an off-spinner, and he had a very basic, by basic, I mean, actually a very good bowling action himself, two or three paces, quite a classical, you know, quite a tall man's off-spinner's action. And so he basically taught me that, and we'd spend hours bowling with a handkerchief with a, with a threepenny piece on it or something, uh, <laughs> you know, and if I hit the handkerchief, I've got the threepenny piece. But it was more the, just the rhythm of that bowling action that, although obviously I then became a fast bowler actually it is quite a good basic action you know and it's you can see my dad's influence as an off spinner's action you know side on and quite a high left arm and a high right arm it was, it was based on dad in the garden really by the time i was about i suppose 12 and so about to move, move schools i was bowling fast and already i was bowling faster than than anybody else yeah of my age group so yeah, that's always a pretty sure sign that you've got a, a little bit extra. So from Tavern School, I went to Uppingham School and immediately was playing sort of two years above my age. So and then I went to obviously playing village cricket as well, Ufford Park, playing against men at the age of 14 and obviously being a bit quick for them. So there was that there was that natural pace 
that I had, which is strange because I mean, I was, the, I was like a stick insect. I was the thinnest. Me and Neil Foster would easily qualify, I think, as the thinnest bowlers ever to play for England. We always joked amongst, amongst ourselves about who was, who was the thinnest or who was the more bustly or whatever, but there was nothing on either of us. And I, right. I mean, it's amazing, really, looking at me and, and why we weren't sort of encouraged in any way or helped or, or programmed or processed to you know, go into gyms. I mean, there weren't really gyms and things like that. You know, it just didn't happen. I don't know what impact that might have had on me, whether it been, you know, some people talk about if you get a bit too muscle-bound, actually, this, that's not a good thing. You lose your rhythm and your, your, you know, your looseness. But I know I could have been fitter. My whole playing career, I was 12, 12 stone and a quarter. Right. <laughs> uh, that, that, that never varied. Uh, it's, rather, it's rather more these days, unfortunately. But um, um, but that I mean that is that's 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 like a rake. Yeah. Really, for a fast for a fast bowler, I mean, it's uh, extraordinary, really. Yeah, absolutely. How did things then progress from there? Because then you had an opportunity with Surrey, didn't you? For my sixteenth birthday party, I went to um, Alf Gover's coaching clinic in London, which is a big trip out. That was um, above a garage. I had three days there with Alf, who was a lovely old boy. I mean, what a character. And he immediately thought, okay, we've got something here. So he contacted Surrey. And I was only 16. And so they asked me to go down in the summer holidays to go and play for them, uh, for the second team and so on. And now that's a big deal because, you know, a farmer's son from Lincolnshire, I don't ever been to London before. And so dad somehow, and I don't know how he did it, managed to locate... Mr. and Mrs. Bushel, who uh, had a, well, they, they took me in as a sort of B&B arrangement in Morden uh, on the Northern Line, so I could get on the tube, go up to the Oval, and Dad knew I wouldn't get lost, you know. And so I went to Surrey at the age of 16 and 17, where, uh, I have to be honest, it was the most unpleasant bullying culture really? um, that, I, that I'd ever experienced. It was a, it was a horrendous place. In terms of the coaches um, or the other players? Well, largely through the coach was Fred Tippett. He was a very prejudiced individual. I just hated every minute of it, there, if yeah. I'm honest. I know good friends of mine, Monty Lynch and people like that, had a very hard time. And so I did two summers of it. And I went back to school to Morris Hallam, who's a former Leicestershire captain, and he was coaching, I think. And I said, I'm sorry, if that's, if that's professional cricket, I don't want anything to do with it. And he said, no, 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 it's not like that. And he said, that's, that's when he got Leicestershire involved, because I was at school in Leicestershire. And so um, that's how I ended up playing there. No, I mean, it was, it was, whether it was the same at all the clubs at the time, I don't know, but certainly Surrey in the uh, mid-late 70s was, was not a pleasant place. And then when you arrived at Leicestershire, that was completely different, was it? It was a far more welcoming Absolutely. environment? Yeah, it was brilliant. Breath of fresh air. I mean, Ray Illingworth, go back to Bob Massey. <laughs> David Gower was obviously playing there. Ken Higgs. And it was just a completely different environment. You know, they, they welcomed young cricketers. That was, yeah. I think, one of the issues at the Oval was that there were these sort of gnarled old pros who saw youngsters as a threat. Yeah, you mentioned your captain, Ray Illingworth, there. And I saw a quote that he called you the second fastest bowler in England in 1978 behind Bob Willis. I mean, when somebody of yeah. that reputation says that, are you starting to think, you know, you, you believe in the hype, you think maybe I could play for England? Yeah, it was interesting because that was, that was after the first game, actually. And the first match was against Lancashire, who had always been my, my team of heroes. You know, they were, I was born in Cheshire and Peter Levo was my hero. David Lloyd, of course, you know, these people like that who was captain. And suddenly I was, 
because there's some injuries at Leicester, I was playing against them within about a month of leaving school, I suppose. So I was 18 and I bowled David Lloyd fourth ball and ripped his, you know, ripped his stumps out. It was all very exciting. And uh, <laughs> Ilya was in the gully like he always was. And yes, he started staying all these things. And I was, I'd, I'd just left school. You know, I'd, I'd been a boarding school for 10 years. And so I don't know if I really believed all that or not. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it, I got sent to Australia that winter on a Whitbread scholarship, which is a brilliant opportunity, but rather a wasted opportunity again, because I'd got no, there was no direction. You know, I, I, mean, I teamed up with Frank Tyson, which was great. I mean, he was the coach of Victoria, but he was coaching the Victorian state side, really. So he'd send me off all around Victoria coaching in schools. Um, but again, there's no sort of fitness program for me. There was no schedule for me to build myself up. And on that mini kind of scholarship to Australia, you hit the England captain in the face, didn't you, uh, Mike Brearley? Do you think that yes. helped or hindered your progress into the England team? Well, it didn't help my my relationship with Mike, <laughs> which, <laughs> which only really got better a few years ago. It's a shame because he and I get on like a house on fire now. But it, it, I think it rather it rather impacted that because again, yeah. I was only, I was eighteen. The, the nets were soaking wet, and he said he wants us to go and face some bowling in the nets and I, you know, he was captain. And I did say, you know, are you sure, Skip? Come on, come on, bowl. So I went out and bowled, literally off about three paces. And the third or fourth ball is shot off a length and struck his nose and, and smashed him in the eye and really put him in jeopardy for the test match. And there was one journalist in the ground, Rod Nicholson, from the Melbourne Herald or something like that. And he saw it. And so, of course, that suddenly became a big story and we got flashed around everywhere. And I, I suspect Mike just felt a bit silly, perhaps, that he'd put himself in that position and possibly knocked himself out of the Boxing Day test. You know, that's... Uh, but he, well, he and I could good again now. But, um, it, you know, it, it was... Did it help or hinder? I suppose, again, it, 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 it kept this, this sort of picture of this, you know, this young fast bowler up there in people's minds, I guess. Mm-hmm. Okay. says one thing one minute and then he goes, smash up the England captain the next. I guess the next stage of your career, this, this, these early days, and it's something I've spoken a lot about in these podcasts, it's the, the seesaw nature of a cricket career. You know, one minute you're the next best thing and you're on your way to Australia for this scholarship, you're mixing with the England players. And then I've read that the following winter, you described that as one of the worst of your life. So ha- what happened there? How did it all turn around well, so I got quickly? Some, yeah, I got glandular fever. I went back to Australia, got glandular fever, and that, just knocked me out completely. I think early days of a, certainly in those days, I mean, the early years of a young fast bowler are quite a roller coaster. There's very few that make a, you know, a straight line trajectory. Yeah, there, there are injuries. I mean, it is a tough job. There, there, there were no sort of restrictions or checks or, you know, we didn't have a physio for some of the games at Leicester. <laughs> I mean, for professional cricket, if you compare it now, it was incredibly amateur. You know, you'd be on the road a lot. And so inevitably you got injuries and there was no, no structure in the winters at all. So you'd get your P60 in September and a reporting back date of sometime in early April. And that would be it. You know, you'd be off and you'd have to find work. I was a lorry driver for an asbestos company that I rather regret now, <laughs> uh, <laughs> delivering asbestos around the place in a very old diesel wagon thing. But actually, in, in the end, the steering failed and we ended up in a hedge. Right. That was the end of her. So that wasn't great. I mean, I worked in a window factory making windows. You know, I mean, they're, they're perfectly solid enough jobs, but because it's always so short term, no one's going to give you a, a sort of long term job because they know that in April you're going to go. And 
that was a very unstructured time. And so the best thing to do again would be to try and get a job overseas playing. And I did get to Sydney one winter, about 83 or so, I think. And Zimbabwe. I played there as well for club cricket. Okay. So I played under Duncan Fletcher in, really? in Zimbabwe. Right. He was my, yeah, he was my captain there. And uh, David Houghton, he was on the same side as me. And then at Sydney, John Benno was my captain there, so Richie's brother. That was for Cumberland, who is now called Parramatta, but uh, yeah. way out in the West. That was how I spent those years, those winters, mm-hmm. either filling in with a job at home or trying to get work as a professional overseas. Yeah, and I guess then after those early years, when you're just kind of establishing your way in the team, then... I guess it was 1984 when you you really kind of made it, didn't you? That was a superb season when you took 84 wickets at, what, 28. What happened? Did everything just suddenly click into place? Well, it did, and, and Andy Roberts came. I remember being rather upset about it at the time, or at least in the winter when it was announced he was coming. And I remember writing quite an angry letter to Mike Turner, who was the boss, saying, well, that's it, you know, what am I going to do? If one, of the, one of the greatest fast bowlers of all time is, is coming. You know, where does that leave me? And he said, well, if, you, if you're good enough, it'll leave you bowling at the other end. And, of course, he was right. Andy, I think, came in 83. And I played a few games with him. But it was, yes, in 84. Just everything clicked, really. And I, I started well, got in the side. I think I got sort of eight wickets against Cambridge University at the start. And it sort of got me going. Um, in fact, I got everyone out, apart from Rob Andrew, always reminds me. And so that just got me going, really. And then, yeah, I mean, I didn't get the choice of ends with Andy obviously, but that didn't matter because, you know, just bowling the other end to this legendary fast bowler, uh, you could see, I mean, he still has a ferocious reputation yeah. that people just try to, try to survive and see him off. And then, uh, you know, if I'm honest, they'd obviously have a bit more of a dip at me, you know, mm. and I got better, I got wickets and, you know, he and I worked together well. We travelled everywhere together. He was my, he was a senior player with, in whose car I would travel, so we talked a lot of cricket. He was a horrendous driver. <laughs> uh, but we, but we, um, we, we just talked cricket and we roomed together. And I remember driving somewhere and he said, you know, you keep going like this, you'll play for England this summer. I said, you really think? He said, yeah, absolutely. He said, it's the West Indies. <laughs> so they're going to get through a few players. Yeah. Um, keep going, you know. So that's what happened. And, and, and he was absolutely right. And it was, I suppose, in the end, they had to pick me, really, because they had got through quite a lot. And it was the last test of the series, which was always known as the Blackwash Test. So it wasn't the most sort of maybe the most generous of debuts because England was shot. You know, it was a pretty broken dressing room that I went into. Obviously, you are you were in superb form all season, but just to pick out one match for Leicestershire, I don't know if this made the difference, but against Surrey at the Oval where you took 10 wickets, obviously the West Indies test match where you played was at the Oval as well. So, but that sounded like an absolute brute of a game in terms of the injuries. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I... I I, I did always like bowling at the Oval because the ball tended to swing and it was quick and bouncy in those days. So it was a good place to bowl. I mean, if you didn't get it right, you got to, you could get a bit of tap. But the downside was that they had Sylvester Clark. So you had to go out and face the rampant Sylvester bowling at a million miles an hour. But, but I always enjoyed bowling there. And, and so, yeah, I, I, I remember I did get those, those 10 wickets there. It was always... It's interesting, when you read out the stats at the start, I'm actually, of, of my career, I'm probably most proud of the number of five-wicket balls and, and tens that I got, because it's actually quite a high number. It is. 37, five-wickets, yeah. and ten in a match on six occasions. That's going some, yeah. Well, it is, and they, they not always, but they tend, to, they tend to win matches. I treasure those two stats more than anything else, really. So, yeah, yeah maybe they did look at that 
Tenmaker Hall at the Oval, but the pitch we played on in that match was about the, the worst pitch you could play that West Indies team on because it was, it was like lightning. It was an incredibly hard, quick pitch. And I remember Ian Botham got his 300th test wicket. It was Jeff Dujon, and I was at mid-on. And Ian, I mean, Ian could bowl quickly, and he bowled this absolutely brute of a ball that took off. And Jeff gloved it through to Paul Downton. It was, I mean, I thought, <laughs> That's a bit lively. Yeah. Uh, and you look, if you look in the dressing room, there's Michael Holding and <laughs> Malcolm Marshall and these folks all, Joel Garner sitting in there. You think, oh dear. But it was, I mean, that first test was, it's strange in all sorts of ways. And it's so much better now because, A, I hardly knew anybody. I hadn't met Ian before, Ian Botham. Mm-hmm. And he's obviously such a massive figure in that dressing room. He just sort of layers stuff out in the middle of the room. <laughs> and just sort of dominate it, you know. And so I didn't know him. I didn't know half a side. Was it intimidating going into that changing room? It was. And I, and, and, and I was talking, funny enough, to David Milan the other day. He said the first time that he played for England, he felt he had to prove himself to everybody that was there. And I felt exactly the same because I didn't know them. And, and they're looking at me and thinking, who's this? Uh, or you felt they were. Fortunately, David was captain, so he knew me. It was a very strange atmosphere. They were 4-0 down. I didn't know if I was going to be playing or not. Until the next morning, we had this rather bizarre team meeting before before the game, when it was already four 0 down, and everyone knew it was going to be five nil. <laughs> and um, you know, it was a rather pointless exercise. But I sat next to Alec Bedser, who spent much of the dinner talking about the potatoes he just planted in his garden. <laughs> um, so there weren't many tips passed around about how I might bowl at Viv Richards or something. But it was all rather strange. And the selectors left. Peter May was the head selector. And he, he, they all left the room for us sort of to have some sort of you know tactical discussion, but it, there wasn't very much. It was you know it was it was pop guns against cannons, and uh, I said had four tests are being blasted, a bit like trench warfare really. And, and it's only what about half an hour to go, four to five minutes to go before play started that David handed me my cap and said, "There you go, you're in." It must have been a proud moment though. I mean, a strange atmosphere maybe because. The team are doing so badly, but you know, just to put things in perspective, I'm sure you were excited to play for England. Oh, massively! I mean, it was a, it was a total dream, and it was in, it was, and we we bowled first. The first couple of days were just a blur, really. I didn't get any wickets in the first innings. Richard Ellison got got away early. He made his debut with me, and so he was sort of, you know, once you get a couple of wickets or a wicket, then that's part of that big step of proving that you're capable. And so I didn't take any wickets in the first innings. Again, so those doubts are lingering a bit. And we went back to the dressing room and we batted. And actually, it was actually quite a good game for that series. It was quite even at the end of the first inning. And we went out to field again and we got about 50 for three in their second innings because I got Greenwich with a ball. It just sort of happened, really. It was better. It really cut back at him. Greenwich loved the back foot and cutting. And so he, he slightly misjudged it, perhaps. It wasn't, wasn't quite as wide as he thought, but it did come back at him and really lifted. He ended up sort of gloving a catch rather awkwardly to both of them at slip. So I'm off the mark. And then both of them said, right, as, as Viv Richards walked out at three, he said, don't pitch a ball up till I tell you to. I said, <laughs> OK. So we just really just bombed Viv for about 15 minutes. I think Ian was bowling at the other end. And we just bowled quick and short, quick and short, quick and short. And then he gave me a signal from slip that I pitched one up. And Viv on the back foot, LBW, you know, yeah. might have been a bit high. What a moment, <laughs> Viv, yeah. Viv, well, Viv still claims Viv still claims it wasn't out. We still <laughs> argue about it. 
But uh, yeah. And satisfying on so many levels there, because not only have you got Viv Richard out, but you've hatched a plan together with yeah, the yeah. linchpin, both of them, and it's all come yeah, exactly. together. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, so that, 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 that all felt pretty good, I must say. Yeah. But loving Desmond Haynes hadn't scored a run all, <laughs> all series, and he chose that innings to get 100, which gave them enough, and they blew us away in the second innings. But I felt, I felt all right. It was an amazing atmosphere. The West Indian fans and noise of the cans and the whistles and all that. I mean, it was amazing. But what was extraordinary was how little I remembered of it. I'd managed on an old fangled video machine to record the highlights. And I sat and watched them back. And it was extraordinary how little of the game I actually remembered. And I guess the biggest rubber stamp for your performance was that you were picked in the next game against Sri Lanka. At least then you must have yes. thought, well, look, I've done enough to, you know, to earn myself a, a second bite here. Yeah, and that was a disastrous match. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was a terror, it was an awful game for England because they'd come off the back of this 5 0 to playing. It was Sri Lanka's first test match in England. And Sri Lanka, up to that point, had always been a bit of an add on, you know, to a tour of India. And they were seen, sort of quite wrongly, but they were seen as being not second division, but not, you know, compared to, compared to West Indies. That this beat, you know, this was kind of like a, like a game off. Well, that's what people thought. And again, I remember the team meeting and being a bit surprised because dear old Ian was going to, he was going to bounce them all out and end up with, well, I worked out about figures of sort of 10 for 20. <laughs> so I thought, well, bowl Ian, you know, bounce them out, we're going to bounce them, we're going to bounce them. I thought, right, okay. So when the day dawned and it was a beautiful day at Lords, that, that cloud in the sky. And I remember looking and listening in horror as Gower was, going around, certainly Paul Downton, I'm trying to think of the other Middlesex people, but I know Paul was certainly involved in the conversation about putting them in, I suppose, <laughs> I suppose, on the back of what Ian had said the night before. And I was thinking, no, he can't. <laughs> because actually, <laughs> while I'd always loved bowling at the Oval, I always hated bowling at Lords. Hated right. that. I never, don't think I've got a wicket at Lords. And sure enough, on this beautiful day, and on this flattest pitch with a very short boundary down to the tavern, uh, he stuck him in. Dear, dear. And uh, it was just, it was horrendous. <laughs> Sit out wetting me. My old friend, I always catch up with in Colombo, scored this sort of quite painstaking big hundred. And of Ian's bouncers, I remember sort of a steward being dispatched to the mound stand just to throw the ball back all the time. Yeah. <laughs> he kept bouncing Dillett Mendes. So he just kept smashing him for six. And it was just horrendous. And there's bad light on the second day. But Dickie was umpiring. I said, Dickie, what about the light? He said, he said, I'm offering it to him, but they don't want it. <laughs> they just kept batting. This kept batting, and Ian went off injured. Paul Allen went off injured, and the only bowlers that were left, I think, it was about me and Pat Pocock. I took a third new ball. Alan Lamb dropped a catch off me at slip. I got Arjuna Ranatunga. Actually, again, it was quite a nice ball. This went down the slope. It was just one of the, just a bail trimmer, really. I remember looking. I remember looked at the someone played it the other day. It was not a happy celebration <laughs> because they were just you know they've got so many on the board, and then poor old Aravinda de Silva came out it's his first test and it'll say in wisdom caught Downton bowled Agnew he might even have got naught but he didn't get very many mm. uh, in fact it was a horrible horrible steal down the leg side <laughs> 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 I, I, I kept going but you know, yeah, it's fine off but I remember in the second innings the television volume was up in our dressing room and as we walked out to take the field in a pointless situation because the match was drawn. I remember Richie Benno agreeing with, I think, Peter West that, yes, this is obviously a very important spell here for Jonathan Agnew as far as the winter's concerned. And I thought, oh, God. And I bowled a load of no balls. And, you know, it, it just didn't, it didn't go well. It wasn't, it wasn't awful, 
but it wasn't the, hey, I'm the man to take to India. Yeah, well, uh, that, that's the next thing I was going to ask about India, because you'd think that they'd put faith in a young, fast bowler who, OK, that wasn't a great game for anyone, was it Sri Lanka? Terrible. What were you thinking? Were you expected to, to get the call up? Well, I thought I might, but not they did. But both of them wasn't available either, so he didn't go. But they picked all the ones who played earlier. So Norman Cowens, Neil Foster, Paul Allen, who'd gone off injured in the test match. They all got the nod. Richard Ellison went. Uh, he deserved to succeed. He actually bowled pretty well, though. He went off injured, I think, against Sri Lanka as well. So they got the nod. And I ended up, that was the year, actually, the winter. They ended up working in the window factory. So I was, I was on official standby as a replacement, which didn't mean very much. I mean, there were no nets or anything. So I was there working in, in Ratby in Leicestershire, making windows, <laughs> when suddenly a phone call happened and I was told to report to Lords because I'd be going to India. Incredible. And because Paul Allett was injured. So, I mean, I'd done nothing. I wasn't paid or anything, so I had to work. So I'm working nine to five in the, in the window factory. But then next to it, it's down to Lords. I think I was given, you know, I was given some England sweaters. I didn't, I didn't get a blazer. But I got some England sweaters. I mean, I just looked like the replacement. I got to India, and there's Pat Pocock again, actually. He kept popping up, Pat. But he had been uh, assigned the duty of meeting me at Calcutta Airport. So whereas the team was in Guwahati playing a game, he came and met me. And so he looked after me. We had three or four days, I suppose, there together. And we'd go and find somewhere to run. We'd go to the golf course at Tolly Gunge and do a bit of training. But yeah, there's nowhere to bowl. And that was Christmas time, wasn't it? Yeah, that was Christmas. So Christmas uh, with Pat Pocock. Yes. Oh, well, no, the team arrived in time for Christmas because the test started in Calcutta on Boxing Day, I assume. I remember being sort of 12th man and trying to... It was 1-1. They just, they'd won the second test in Delhi and Richard Ellison had bowled really well there in the, in the sort of gloom and the smog and had swung the ball around. And so morale was quite high, actually, and whereas in India it, it wasn't and Gavaskar and Kapil Devon had a fallout. And I just... Sort of watched really. It, it, was, it was a happy tour. I was rooming with Graham Fowler, who's a you know, good mate, and so that sort of got me settled into things. I just was sort of twelfth man really, and learnt the ropes of what it was like, the food that the team had taken. Were like you know, so lunchtime at, in the Test match. There was Govind, who was the baggage manager, and his two sons, and they would literally take all the team baggage on the trains between matches. But they also were the chefs. And so lunch was literally sort of spam and beans on toast uh, <laughs> cooked in the dressing room. You know, it was bizarre. Yeah, but I'd carry the drinks. Calcutta Test was an incredibly boring game. And Alan Lamb got his test wicket, I remember that, doing a Bob Willis impersonation. <laughs> he got Pravakar LBW. But it was, I, was, I, was sort of, I got slowly into the tour and I was able to bowl. You got a game, didn't you? You got a couple of games, yeah. Well, I got a game in Hyderabad. So the next yeah. game we went... Uh, down to Hyderabad on the way to Madras for the test. I actually got actually actually got five for something like twenty overs, five for a hundred because <laughs> I was so rusty, and it was quite a green pitch. And Chris Sukant was playing for them, who was a murderous opening batsman, and he smashed me all over the place. But I got five wickets at the same time. And some of the press boys again got interested because I suddenly I'm back on the radar. But I didn't make it for the Madras test, which is a good thing because Neil Foster didn't. He bowled them out. How did you cope with the, the heat and the humidity and all well, that? Well, I, 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 like, I just got through it. I was keen yeah. and, you know, I was 24. It was just nice to be playing, to be honest. Yeah. Because what did happen, I didn't play in the fourth or fifth test, but I did play in a couple of the one-day internationals. The first one was in Nagpur. That's when I remember one-day international debut. 
I built Sonny Gavaskar. Gavaskar, yeah. Uh, Vengsaka, Prabhakar. I think I got three for 30, so something like that. And so, again, I mean, I think we I think we might have lost the game, but, you know, I, again, I did all right. What I hadn't realised after that superb series victory it was that it was all off to Australia for the rather grandly named Benson and Hedges World Championship of Cricket. Yeah, well, it was just a madness. <laughs> I mean, that tour was just interminable. And they worked so hard and won that series you know, in very difficult conditions. And then just got flown to Melbourne. It was the first day-nighter ever played at the MCG. So it was a massive occasion. That must have been and, a career highlight because you played in that game, didn't you? Yeah, but, it was, but also bowled like a complete idiot. <laughs> and again, I wasn't expecting to play. And, and what happened was Gower, we arrived in Melbourne and Gower said, right, I don't expect to see any of you for 10 days. Go and enjoy yourselves. So I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> in, fact, in fact, I think we landed in Sydney to start with. So we landed in Sydney and everyone just disappeared. Went out a good time, you know, we had three and a half, four months in India. And so we reconvened, but the focus had gone. I don't think our players really wanted to go. They'd given it everything in India, everything. To come from behind and win there was a fantastic achievement. And then suddenly you sort of let loose in a sweet shop. So we went to Melbourne and I wasn't expecting to play. And I remember, because it was a day-nighter, we had one practice under floodlights at the MCG. Uh, and I'd never been under lights before. And it was just incredible. I mean, incredibly different. It was but also a totally deserted MCG, no one in it. And David came up to me, Gower, and said, yeah, you better get used to this because you're playing tomorrow and you three with a white ball. And then, of course, we were given these <laughs> powder blue clothes to try on. And that was it. That was a sort of introduction to day-night cricket. I remember thinking, oh, this is strange. We bowled with a white ball that day before for the first time in my case. Woke up next morning. We were staying at the hotel that overlooks the MCG. I remember opening the curtains and thinking, my God, because although it was a day-nighter, there were just thousands of people there waiting there were 90-something thousand in the ground that day. It was, it was just, it was incredible. We had to do a lap of the outfield, sort of waving to the crowd to say hello, everyone. And I mean, you can imagine the abuse. <laughs> it, was, it was horrendous. It was absolutely horrendous. And we got back in the dressing room. We thought, what was that all about? And we batted first. And I sat down in the bottom. It had sort of two layers in the dressing room at the MCG. And I was downstairs with Chris Cowdery. We're watching it on the telly, and all you could hear from upstairs was when the door opened to go out, a, a new bat, and this sort of roaring of noise would come through, and then the door would close, and it'd be silence again. And so we're sitting watching the game, and Chris decides it's time for him to put his pads on, and then a wicket falls. He said, oh, I'm in. So off he went. He heard the... <laughs> and the silence as he went out. And I watched <laughs> him on the telly, walking all the way out into the middle. He took guard, looked round. He got a first baller... I had to walk all the way back. First ball. And I heard the oh, door closed. And he came back down and sat beside me. We just looked at each other and sort of shrugged our shoulders. You know. But I, I got into bat and I remember Jeff Lawson bowling from the southern end, which is the noisy end. And I was batting Richard Ellison, whose eyes were like golf balls. And I mean, he couldn't really talk. He couldn't hear anything. Apart from the crowd roaring. I mean, they'd waited all these years in Melbourne for day-night cricket. It was, it was incredible. What are you thinking at that I, point? I, this is terrific, or this is miserable, or this is intimidating? Well, it was kind of a bit of both, really. You know, totally underprepared yeah. for, for that. <laughs> it just it felt surreal. It was Alan Border there and dear old Dean Jones. And, you know, it was just, it was just weird. Jeff Lawson having a go, he had a crowd noise. We didn't get enough runs. And uh, I came on first change, and they'd already got a bit of a start, but I didn't, I didn't bowl very well. 
And so that was, I honestly thought that was probably the end of my international career, really. You know, I'm, I, I, know, I mean, I have to make assessments now, you know, very quickly of, of young cricketers when they come in, you know, are they good enough? You know, it's always too, people always have to know too quickly if someone's good enough or not. But you can tell those who are. It's like Stokes or Sam Curran or these people. They just got that character about them. They just walk in and you you know that they're going to be good enough. Whereas it was always that extra step for me that was a bit too far. Let's sum up where we are, because obviously we're about to to get into the ashes summer. But you've been making windows. You've suddenly been transported to India. Then you've been thrown into the lion's den at the MCG. It it was a bit of a swirl, but I think I was was realistic enough to think that I probably wasn't going to play anymore. So you weren't targeting the Ashes when you came back? No, I wasn't at all, really. Really? I mean, no. And it's funny because my playing career was in two halves, really, in that Mm. the first half, including when I played for England, I was a fast bowler. But the second half, I cut the run down. I still bowled at a nippy pace. But I swung the ball, bowled long spells, had a good bouncer, but was a much better bowler. Mm. And that was when I didn't play for England. So... That, that, you know, that, I think, if I'm honest, was probably where I was. I mean, the bulk of my wickets I took from 1986, because by that point, yes, we're leading up to the Ashes Test match that I played in. I knew that was the end. And it, it all happened because, no, I mean, I didn't target the Ashes at all. Well, you played against the Aussies in June for Leicestershire, didn't you? Yes. Um, and you had a pretty decent I match. Did, did I? I can't remember. Well, I mean, you got, well, actually, you got 19 with the bat as well. But you got, you got three wickets. You got Kepler Vessels, Boone and Bob Holland. Um, right, OK. I remember Kepler, actually. I got him quite cheaply, I think, LBW. We did a bodyline reenactment for a bit of a laugh. Did you? Bodyline was being shown on the telly. And so Gower, being Gower, clapped his hands twice and said, right, that's it, everyone in position. So we did a bodyline field. But, of course, it was called a no-ball, a bell and bounce, or whoever it was. We had a bit of a laugh, and we reenacted the, the bodyline thing. But, yeah, OK, so that's interesting. I hadn't realised I got a few kids. But, I mean, the match that did it was Kent. The match before the Old Trafford Test match were playing Kent at Grace Road. And this is a really bizarre game because I got nine for seven. But I was off the field for some of the time. I had a niggle. So I had to keep sort of coming off and get strapped up and, and then had to serve time. We couldn't bowl again. So it wasn't so I sort of ran through them with nine for. But <laughs> I did happen to take the first nine wickets. And out came Kevin Jarvis, who was comfortably the worst number 11 on the circuit at the time. And I'm bowling at Kevin Jarvis to get all 10. I couldn't get him out. And so I had a hole over at him. I think, I think he shouldered arms twice. And then uh, he got a single or something. And he got down the other end. And Paddy Clifton then just had to get him out. He bowled a straight ball and bowled him. I think when he first came in, you were on a hat-trick. So it would have been a hat-trick oh, was I? and all <laughs> right, 10. Well, right. well, there you go. Right. So I mean, that would have been even more special, wouldn't it? It's so. interesting, actually, this series, because... The previous guest on this podcast was Arnie Sidebottom, who played in the test before you. And I spoke to him and he was completely surprised that he was picked for that game because he said he was struggling with injuries. Yeah, so I jumped ahead again. Yes, correct. So I was actually selected in the 12 for Trent Bridge. You're right, Arnie's picked and he had a bad toe. I remember him saying to me the day before the game, I goes, I know I'm not, not properly fit, but it'll be my only chance. And I'm, I'm going to bloody well play. <laughs> I thought, oh, OK, that's interesting. So he had his toe, was a real mess. And so sure enough, he played, didn't make it through the game. So that's why he was a one-test wonder. But he got his cat, which was really what he wanted. And I had to do quite a lot of fielding for him. Did you think that was a bit bizarre? David Gower is your 
county captain as well as the England captain, and he's picking an injured player ahead of you. Do you think that was a bit strange? Well, I think Arnie has kept it quiet. I mean, I didn't know until he told me that afternoon, the day before the game, that he had a he had an injury, and so he just didn't t- he just didn't tell anybody. And he was a he was a tough old so and so. So he would have he got through that first innings. He couldn't make it through the second. He also said it was a complete road that the train. No, it was. Except the next one then. So, yes, I play at Old Trafford. It was a horrible game. There was a howling wind (laughs) blowing straight down the ground that I had to bowl into because Ian got the choice of ends, obviously. And I remember just trying to flog into into this gale on a pretty flat pitch. And there was a lot of rain around as well. And I didn't get any wickets. And it was a nightmare again. I remember Simon O'Donnell, who I'd played with in Melbourne, smashing me for six over mid-wicket. And I, I thought, oh, this is horrible. Craig McDermott got eight wickets, I think, from memory, bowling with the wind behind him. It was a very tedious draw. I think I got one spell downwind. The rest of it, I was just flogging into this gale. It was, it was significant because there were three Cheshire-born bowlers playing for England, me, Ian and uh, Paul Allard. Other than that, it was a pretty insignificant game. And that was the end. Do you no. curse your luck that you were involved? You know, your first one was against the West Indies when they were already 4-0 up. The one Ashes test you play is, you know, in terrible conditions. Yeah. It's about when you get yeah. your oh, chances. It is, and, 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 and I might have had more luck, the three tests that I played. But in those days, I mean, that's why I felt you know, sorry for Arnie. The rotation, it wasn't rotation, it was just like a revolving door. I mean, you were just in and out. If you didn't perform immediately... You were out. There was more competition. I mean, I think amongst the bowlers, there was a lot of high-quality English fast bowling around in those days. I mean, a lot. It was a good thing in some ways because in county cricket, you knew that if you performed well one week, you, you might be playing for England the next. It was a great motivator. But to draw the comparison with Arnie again, he was nearing the end of his career. You were only 25. So yeah. you surely didn't think yeah. that was going to be your last game for England. Well, I think I did probably, yes. And so that's why the, the following year we were playing at Somerset and I had a bit of a side strain. Not as serious, but it was one of those, and you don't mess around with side strains, um, but it was there as a bit of a niggle. And Peter Willie was captain because David was obviously away playing for England. And Peter said, I want you to play. I said, well, I said, he said, I want you to play. You just call me a wimp. You're a wimp. You play. I said, OK, I'll play, but I'm going to shorten my run and try and get through. There must be some other injuries. And it was one of those days at Grace Road where the breeze was perfect. It was coming to the southwest. Uh, I bowled up the hills. I was only came off a short run. And the ball swung around all over the place. I got six wickets, including Martin Crow. And all Peter Willie did was sort of fume in the, in the gully. Because uh, coming in, I was, with virtually no effort, I got six. <laughs> and that was why I changed. Because when I was fitter, when mm. my side straight had gone, like a bowl... Not as quick as I used to bowl, but it was a more controlled pace. And I knew I could yeah. swing it. And so that's, that, was, that was sort of Agnew Mark II. I mean, 87 was staggering. I mean, 101 wickets for Leicestershire, and you were one of the five wisdom cricketers of the year. Well, just hard work, luck. I don't think I missed a game. Bowled a lot of overs and bowled well. And the following year too. And that's when I should have been playing Brigham. But my time had gone. And, 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 and that's fair enough. I accept that. But I... I was quite cross with, with Mickey Stewart, I remember, one of the selectors. He was always the one who had to phone me up still when I hadn't been picked, which he did every now and then, to be fair to him. And I used to give him a blast. I said, you know, what more, what, seriously, what more have I got to do? You know, I, between tests, I remember taking 10 for against Gloucestershire at Gloucester. Yeah. 
and it was a day of a selection meeting, I think. And I remember listening to the radio on the way driving back. And again, I hadn't made it. I just got a bit angry about it. I just felt that I was, well, I felt I was being judged on the previous bowler when I was a different bowler in those days. But hey, you know, I did get picked again in 1989. It was, it was a farce because it was coming up to the last test of the series. And David was captain again. We were playing, I think, I think it was Surrey at Grace Road. The side had been picked. And then again, there was a you know, the whole list of fast bowlers who'd been picked and I hadn't been picked. But one by one, they kept phoning the Grace Road dressing room to speak to David. They were all dropping out through injury. And I mean, you know, they, were all, they all did. There were just scores of them all phoning up. In the end, David's put the phone down and he just sat in his chair and was thinking, and he says, what, what am I going to do? Who are we going to pick? And Peter Willey said, well, what about Aggers? He's, he's doing all right. You know, he's taking a few wickets. And David said, yes, gosh, of course. He said, right, yeah, you're in. I thought, oh, thanks very much. That's, that's great. That, that's good news. You know, the moment I'd waited for, again, it was the last test of a series that we were losing. I didn't care. I didn't care. And I, got, I went, David said, look, I've, just, I've got to run it past Ted Dexter and Mickey Stewart in the morning. So I'll give you a buzz first thing just to confirm it, but you're in. I said, great. So I went home, phoned my dad, got my, my kit out, my England sweaters. Fantastic. The next day came and David rang. He said, I'm sorry, you're not in anymore. I couldn't convince Mickey Stewart and Ted Dexter. They've selected Alan Eagleston. So that was that. And that was when I knew my career was over. I've read about that. And, you know, you, you've recounted it in the same way. You, you've got every right to feel extremely <laughs> aggrieved by that. Well, but, but what it did, though, it did focus my mind on the future. So, I mean, I knew. I was yeah. 29. I was not going to play Brigham. So I'd been working at Radio Leicester. I got into broadcasting in the winters. I've been working for the Today newspaper. And so I focused in my mind then on moving on. I had one more year at Leicester. And it was the it was the year in which they did those dreadful things to the balls, gave them no seams whatsoever, and teams were rattling up to nine hundred. So that was my last season. Because today, today, often with a job as cricket correspondent, to go to Australia that winter. Yeah, if we keep this as well on a Ashes front, you could have played that Test match in eighty nine for for all the money it looked like you were going to play. You could have reasonably hoped that you might have been a player on that tour, and yet yeah, there you were as one of the Beastie Boys. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, you know, that focused the mind, not being picked, and, and, and the circumstances around it, because Dexter and Mickey were going to be around for a while, so they weren't going to pick me. And once you have played, well, I find anyway, you need to feel that you can play again. It's, a, it's that motivating focus that you want to play again. And so once you know that's not going to happen, do I really want to go and stand at fine leg at Grace Road for another five, six years? So that was why... It did, it did focus onto, onto the writing. And during that Ashes tour, writing for Today, it was when Chris Martin Jenkins left the BBC to go to the Telegraph. So the BBC job came available, we, which I applied for and got. We're talking about the ill timing of some of your test matches. The opposite was certainly true of, of that opportunity, wasn't it? Oh, it's a, it's a brilliant, brilliant. I mean, you know, total luck. Yeah, in a way, it sort of reflects, I think people forget that. I, I think it's quite interesting talking to you going through my playing because... I think most people <laughs> don't know that I used to play. I don't talk about it very much. I just talk about the broadcasting side of it. So, you know, that, that was a complete change of fortune and opened the door to you know, a, a second career that I probably felt more comfortable in than my first, really. Now, it's you've spent far work. more time being a commentator than you were a player, haven't you? And being a yeah, absolutely. It's double the time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's just something that I was, able to do and it's you know it's, it's 
there's more to it than people might you know, might imagine. Obviously, you know, much, you know, much more work to it and so on. But essentially, it was quite an easy progression. What has been better, playing or commentating? That's a really difficult question. I mean, I think, if I'm honest, I think commentating because I've been lucky enough to commentate on events that I would love to have been involved in as a player. You know, England winning the Ashes and, and, and World Cups and stuff. One question I ask everyone on this podcast is, what did it mean to you to play in the Ashes? But I think there's a secondary question to you as well. And what does it mean to describe an Ashes winning moment? Yeah, I mean, because my Ashes experience was you know, so low-key, I mean, that's the only way of putting it, really. I mean, it was, it was a, such a low-key game. Cold, wet, windy and horrible. You know, the Ashes never really caught fire for me, if you like. You want to put it in sort of a corny way. I was 12th man for the next two. So Richard bowling him out at Edgebaston. And then my, my roommate, Les Taylor, actually, took the last Ashes wicket at the Oval when I was 12th man. I was really thrilled for him. He's a great fella. So my actual Ashes experience, although I was an Ashes winner officially, yeah, because we, we won that <laughs> series. And my contribution was naught for 100 and about three runs or something. So, oh no, winning... One of the great highlights of commentating for me was certainly winning the Ashes in, in Melbourne in 2010-11. That was, that was a magical moment. So rarely done. My wife was there and I managed to... I got her in the ground and I'd also got a, a spare pass and I stuck it round her neck and dragged her out into the middle oh, as wow. the match was over and, and interviewing all the players, captains and, and, and savouring the atmosphere because I was able to say, this is why I do this, this totally selfish job. And so she was out there with me, Cook and Swan and all the rest of them. There the sprinkler yeah. going on, and so that was special. That's that's probably been my my happiest moment. And that's where we'll leave Jonathan Agnew on the pitch at the MCG in 2010 at the end of the Boxing Day Test, soaking up the atmosphere in one of the great cricketing stadiums in the world. Huge thanks to Jonathan for coming on the show and sharing the story of his cricketing life. It's been an honour and a pleasure. This has been a very English-centric series so far in terms of our one Ashes Test Wonders, but we're going to correct that in the next two episodes when we'll hear from Murray Bennett and Dave Gilbert, who both played in the sixth and final test of the series at the Oval. I'd love for you to join me. Until then, I've been Graham Barrett, and this has been Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. <laughs> <laughs>